Hello and welcome to Veritalk, podcasting the life of the mind from the Harvard Graduate School of Arts and Sciences. I'm Nick Nardini, and I'm a graduate student in English. Hi, I'm Laura Janti, and I'm a graduate student in physics. And we'll be your host for today's installment of Veritalk. Today we'll be discussing ultra-fast DNA sequencing with a PhD candidate in applied physics. And a little later, that very same PhD candidate will be demonstrating his mastery of a very different pursuit, solo violin. So among all the scientific discoveries of the 20th century, arguably the single most important was deoxyribonucleic acid, the corkscrewing molecule known to its friends as DNA. It's been a discovery that keeps on discovering, from early hints that DNA might be the long-sought carrier of inherited traits, to Watson and Crick's 1953 description of its double helix structure, to our contemporary hunts for the genes for everything from Alzheimer's to stamp collecting, the frontiers of biology remain amid the four nucleotides with which we are all written. Methods for reading DNA's code were first discovered in the 1970s, but it wasn't until 2003 that the complete human genome was finally described. Now, scientists are at work on techniques for ultra-fast DNA sequencing, raising the possibility of producing complete genetic, genetic codes in as little as 10 minutes, and thereby promising to change almost everything about modern biology and medicine. One of those scientists is Aaron Kwan, a graduate student in Gene Golovchenko's lab at the Harvard School of Engineering and Applied Sciences. Aaron, Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. So, Aaron, why don't you begin by just describing what the current state of the field is? What are the current methods of DNA sequencing? Sure. The current state uh, of DNA sequencing can sort of be compared to the computer industry with massively parallelizing uh, the process. The, the current methods of DNA sequencing, most of them are actually very similar to the original Sanger method, uh, which is very time-consuming in that you have to take your original gen genetic material and amplify it, that is copy it uh, many, many, many times, and then use all of those fragments to sort of piece and puzzle together what the original um, genetic material was. And so in the current state of the art, basically what you have is large machines that can do this extremely quickly and on a large scale so that you can um, take what's a really computationally and um, uh, sort of manpower intensive uh, process and, and sort of shrink down the, the time scale. Uh, I'm not uh, a sort of a genome scientist per se, so I don't, I'm not using the state of the art, but as far as I know, a full genome, if you have enough resources, can be done quite fast. I think in a day to a week, an individual probably could be sequenced, but that's a very expensive process. Can you uh, give us a sense of um, what sort of scale you're talking about? How many places in the U.S., for example, could do a sequencing in uh, that time scale? I see. Day? Um, I'm not sure. I, there, there's some genome institutes, for example, be the Broad at, at MIT. Um, if you have sort of a big sequencing center and it's a sudden, and and you have only one project, you know, all the machines are running on a single project, then I think you can sort of hit these maximum speeds. But the issue is, is that there are a lot of projects going on at any one time that are sharing these sequencing facilities usually, and so it's sort of a matter of you have to get in line. And, and use the, the machines to, to do the sequencing. The problem is not that you can't do it quickly enough, it's that it takes, there's a, there's a limited uh, amount of machines and a limited amount of resources to, to do your, your science. Right. So the current method is a, is a chemical process by which you extract the, the information about the DNA? 
Well, I would say that the current method, the best way to describe it is, is, a large, is, is a long process because it starts with the purification and extraction of DNA and then continues to large-scale amplification of the DNA and then the, the actual sequencing of those fragments. And then there's also a large computational step where you have to take the data that you have from those fragments and then put them back into one sequence, figure out what the original sequence must have been. So there's a, there's a lot of, of different steps, and, and in its entirety, the whole thing sort of takes a lot of time. So which part of this process are you working on? So we are attempting to really condense the process. What we're working on is, a, is what's called a single molecule method, which means that we are actually going to look at one molecule of DNA and try to sequence it directly. Um, so that means you're going to... So el eliminating the amplification step. Exactly. So you're going to eliminate a lot of the amplification, uh, all of the amplification and um, much of the purification uh, steps as well as the, I guess, the computation steps at the end should be much easier. Uh, and the basic idea is sort of if you, if you thought about DNA as a strand of different bases, mm -hmm. okay, what you would want to do is just pull it and look at each of the, the bases in a row and, and just read them off like you would read a book. Uh, and so that's sort of the basic idea behind our, our technology is really simplifying it and, and streamlining the process. And how would you go about reading it off like a book? What's, so, the, what's the language that you use in which to do that? That's, that's a great question. I'm glad that you asked. So we are uh, working with nanopores, which are basically very, very small holes. Um, they're sort of on the order of a nanometer, which is nine orders of magnitude smaller than, than a meter. So you've got basically a meter is the sort of length scale of a table, right? And then a millimeter, we're all familiar with th that. Then you go to a micron, which is a thousand times smaller than, than a millimeter, and then a thousand times more than you're on nanometer scale. So it's, it's so small that it's uh, similar to the diameter of a strand of DNA. And this is a hole in, in what exactly? So this is a hole. You can make them out of various materials. We have been working on solid-state materials, uh, many of which are used in the computer industry. Mm. Um, so things like silicon oxide, silicon nitride, and most recently we've been working on graphene, which is a single, single sheet of carbon atoms. How do you make a very small hole in something? So the difficulty is really making the hole so small. There are a number of methods that we use. The one that we use is uh, using a transmission electron microscope. Uh, which is a tool that's used to image very, very small objects. And we, it's basically a, an electron beam that goes through what you're looking at. Mm -hmm. And your sample, it basically deflects the electrons as they go through mm -hmm. your sample based on the structure of your sample. And then you basically look at how the electrons come out of your sample and you, um, it, and it's basically an image of, of what you're looking at. Now we take this electron beam and we... Uh, we condense it to a very, very small spot of a few nanometers, and basically we can burn through uh, materials if they're thin enough. Okay, so you use a very small, very focused electron very focused beam, electron beam. To actually make a hole yes, in, in yes. your material. That's okay. sort of the most common, common method. Okay, so you have your graphene sheet, one atom thick, yes. and through either of these methods, you have a tiny one nanometer hole. Mm -hmm. Now what? So now what you do is you use this membrane to separate two reservoirs of fluid. It's basically salt solution. Mm. And on one side you have DNA, on the other side you have just salt solution. Mm -hmm. And if you apply an electric field from one side to the other, the DNA will, will want to go from one side to the other because it has uh, a negative charge in solution. I see. 
And the DNA wants to go across the membrane, but the only way it can go across is through this tiny hole. Right. So in order to get through, it has to unravel itself because the hole is so small. So you're basically sort of like threading a needle. The DNA unravels and travels through the hole. And if you sort of take the perspective of the hole, you realize that the hole gets to see all of the bases in a row, uh, in order. So how does it read off the... Yeah, you say the hole sees. How does, how does yeah, the how hole does the Yeah, so that's, that's a very interesting question, and that has uh, it's been an open question for, for a long time. Now, the simplest method is using what's called the ion current blockade. Um, so when you have a hole, let's, let's say, let's ignore the DNA for now. If you apply an electric field uh, across the hole, there are little salt ions, uh, let's say um, sodium and chloride ions, that are also positively and negatively charged. And they are also um, influenced by the electric field. So at any point in time, they're streaming through your hole at a certain rate based on how big the hole is and, and what your field is. And we can measure that, that what's an electrical current, effectively, uh, as a function of time. Now, if you were to take something and block the hole, that current would go down mm. because the hole would effectively be smaller. And that's exactly what happens when you have the DNA go through. The DNA actually blocks part of the hole. So if you're looking at your current while the DNA goes through, you'll see the current uh, suddenly drop to a lower level. And that, that tells you that the DNA is in the pore. Mm. And it will be there for a certain amount of time, depending on how long the DNA is. And when the DNA goes to the other side, the, the current will go back to its original level. I see. So summoning back my uh, high school biology course, I think I remember that there are, there are four nucleotides that make up a strand of DNA, right? yes. four different nucleotides. Mm -hmm. And each of these nucleotides presumably is of slightly different shape. That's so right. as they pass through the hole, they would block it for a different length of time? That's exactly right. And that, that's sort of the hope. Um, and the difficulty then is, do you have enough sensitivity to tell the difference between these um, four different mm -hmm. base, bases? Because we must be speaking about uh, a length of time that's on the order of so, nan nanoseconds, right? Yeah, yeah. So, so indeed, if you freely let the, the, the DNA go through, uh, each base is not... Uh, there long enough to for you to be able to to see each one, mm -hmm. and so uh, we require a, a clever way of slowing down the DNA or controlling its motion. This is a step that that in our lab we have not uh, really uh, addressed much. Right. Um, but our our colleagues in the sort of biological world they they do similar experiments with protein pores, and these are basically genetically modified uh, proteins from bacteria or viruses. They, they also take advantage of, uh, of the machinery that we, that we use in our bodies. There's, a, there's a, um, an enzyme called DNA polymerase, which takes your, while your DNA is being replicated in the body, it basically holds on to it and, and, and ratchets it one base at a time as you're copying. Hmm. So they've been able to uh, genetically modify these so they can use them with their pores, and basically that molecular motor will just pull the DNA base by base through their pore at a much slower time scale than it would go freely. Well, so what time scales are we talking about here? If you were able to pull this molecule through at the rate that you would need to do in order to read it, how long would it take to read one molecule of DNA? For so I would say if you have a very low noise setup, um, a millisecond or, or, or 500 microseconds per base is plenty. And that allows you to do uh, much faster work than they're currently doing? Yes, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, it, it's a sort of a single read happens in, in basically less than a second um, for, for, let's say, a, a 10 kilobase pair long on DNA. And, and in your whole genome, you have 
something like 3 billion bases. Um, the entire strand of DNA passes through this hole in, le- in less than a second. Yes. And, and, and you can read it. And you, uh, yes, if you, so even the- if you slow it down, point, yes, yeah. even when you slow it down uh, enough to be able to read out, out the, um, the bases, it's, you know, seconds or less than seconds for, for large strands of DNA. What's the current challenge that you guys are working on now? Is, is it really the uh, reading the electrical signals out from the pore? Is that the stopping point? So it's been a very exciting year for nanopore uh, research. There, there was recently a, the first commercial product announced in, in I think, February or January um, by Oxford Nanopore Technologies. This was a protein pore-based product, and, and they, they basically claim that they have a system that can be used to sequence DNA, to do single-molecule mm. DNA sequencing. So... Our research really, we we are looking at this technology, and it's it's pretty clear that it's going to work on some level. We believe that the solid state pores, which don't depend on this um, genetic engineering and and using sort of proteins that we don't know everything about, are going to be much stabler and cheaper to produce, easier to sort of make on a large scale. So a lot of our work at this point has been on a materials level trying to figure out how to make pores that are going to be really durable and have the, the best sens- sensitivity and durability. So that's sort of w- where we're going with the graphene um, membranes. These are very strong membranes, but extremely thin, so they'll have very good sensitivity. Okay, so the situation now seems to be we're on the brink of a massive disruption of, of the way that we currently sequence DNA, right? And it seems like very soon we're going to be able to perform this process at speeds much, much faster than we currently do. So right now we're talking about a day to a week at a very n- small number of very limited facilities. What are we looking at a few years from now? How quickly will we be able to sequence a, a DNA and, 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 and how frequently? Yeah, so I think at this point, looking forward, we're going to see that the actual sequencing step is no longer going to be the limiting limiting factor. It's going to be how quickly can you go from, uh, you know, a cheek swab or or whatever to the uh, initial material that that you need to, to feed into your nanopore system. I see. Um, and that, that pathway is, is going to be much shorter than it is, uh, than it is now for, for current technology. So, you know, I'm really hoping, and I, and I believe certainly in, in 10 years, um, you're going to be able to have clinical sequencing. You know, that is, you, you go into the hospital and, um, you know, before they, or as part of their testing, their routine testing, they'll sequence your DNA and, and sort of get an idea of who you are and so this is, of course, a completely revolutionary idea. I mean, I know that biologists and physicists have been thinking about this for a long time, but for those of us from the outside, this kind of seems scary. I mean, maybe this is great, but this also seems um, like suddenly there will be vast amounts of information available about us to our doctors. Oh, yes, absolutely, absolutely. Um, and, you know, as, as with any technology, there are sort of good ways to use it and, and, and bad ways to use it. And from a scientist's perspective, I think... It, the easy answer is this is a this is an issue of regulation and sort of you know public cultural conceptions of morality that we don't worry about in the research phase. Mm-hmm. Um, but they are very interesting questions to explore. For instance, you know if you know that you have genetic um, sort of disposition to a certain disease, insurance companies, for example, have an incentive to sort of not cover you. These kind of things, right? And so there are a lot of privacy. Issues and you know even on a social scale, I think it will it will really change the way people interact. For instance, you know let's say let's say you're on a on a date with somebody, right? And 
Okay. You want to know, yeah. right? You want to know what their genetic material is. And so let me see the reading, right? Exactly. I mean, it's as easy as getting a cheek swab or a piece yeah. of hair, maybe, possibly. So Is that going to be how dates begin in the future? Well, I don't know. It's a question. Swab. It's sort of, you know, as a society, do we want people screening each other based on the genetic material, right? Or would we even want to know our own genetic well, let, let's I mean, let's start let's start a little bit further back. So, sure. do you think that ten years, maybe fifteen years from now, um, a, a genetic reading is just going to be a standard part of of childbirth, as standard as you know, c- counting toes? I think. I mean, it's definitely going to par- partially. I, I don't. I don't know if a complete genome sequence will be necessary, but I think certainly there'll be some screening for particularly common um, diseases and 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 problems. You know, that will happen before birth. Mm. And that's, you know, of course, morally charged as well, um, because, y- you know, you're going to have people uh, having to make decisions that they wouldn't otherwise make. Right. So, so I think the technology will be there. It's sort of a question of um, policy and economics. It's, is it worth it? What are we going to use it for, et cetera? Um, so let's say, let's go back to, you know, someone who goes in and gets uh, for a doctor's appointment. Is the idea that the doctor could screen and find some some... Uh, genetic dis- predisposition, I guess they would know that at birth, but let's say, you know, this technology just mm-hmm. comes, um, and then could use that to uh, really change the way they're treating them? I mean, is this something that yes, doctors... Yes, oh, absolutely. I mean, here, here's an example. Um, you know, recently my grandmother was, was diagnosed with a type of lung cancer, and they have sort of basically there's two main treatment options. One is uh, a chemotherapy sort of blanket. You just hit everything and hope that you get, you, you get the cancer. And another one are these new targeted drug therapies, which are, you know, genetically targeted for certain cancers. And the, the thing with these new, I mean, they're sort of really good if it works, um, but they're targeted for certain cancers. So if your particular cancer doesn't have the right genetics, then these targeted therapies won't work. So what happens when you go into the hospital is they take a biopsy and then they send it out to the lab to do genetic testing. And this process takes, you know, two, three weeks. And then, um, you know, what happened in her case is actually they, they got a, a poor biopsy sample. So then they had to do it again. So you're looking at a month to a month and a half of time from diagnosis to before they can begin treatment. And if we can bring that down to a day, that's going to really change the way that that people are treated and, and increase the effectiveness of these kind of treatments. Right. Of course, the flip side of these very targeted treatments would be very targeted sort of uh, bioengineering of maybe viruses or something. I was reading this article in The Atlantic recently about um, national security threats, right? Getting a piece of the president's DNA and then engineering a virus specifically tailored to the president so it only, you know, it only infects the president. Mm-hmm. You know, I think something like targeting uh a malevolent sort of disease to a certain person, I think that's more 50, 100 years away. 50, 100 years than, you know. But this is, of course, all speculation. But I think that's a very difficult thing because if you look at all the genomes uh, amongst people, we're basically all the same. Right. You know, and it's only the little tiny changes that, that we care about. Mm. Well, that's about all the uh, time we have for DNA sequencing. Um, we spent about 20 minutes now with one version of Aaron Kwan, and to round out our show, we'd like to spend the next five or so minutes with a totally different Aaron Kwan. So, Aaron, you're the music director and conductor of the Graduate Student Orchestra here at Harvard, and I understand that before committing yourself to the life of a PhD student, you came pretty far as a professional musician. Yes, that's right. Um, I, I spent a year before starting graduate school at New England Conservatory studying um violin uh, with, with Donald Wallerstein. And you actually earned an MM, a master's in music. Yes, it was a master's. And you performed professionally, too. I have sort of been on, I, I would call it a, a pre-professional track. Okay. Um, 
But, uh, you know, certainly during high school and college, I was very serious uh, about playing, and it was a very big decision for me to decide whether to go into music professionally or pursue science. And how was that decision eventually made? I think it was sort of a gradual decision. It it hinged a lot on uh, realizations about my own personality. I think that at, at the core, I'm sort of more, I work more like a scientist than a, than a performer. Hmm. You know, when you're, when you're studying in the arts, it, it's very competitive all the time. So you really have to push yourself and assume that you're good enough, assume that you're talented enough. And it's very hard to then dig out, you know, is this really what I'm most talented at? Or, or is this really what, you know, society needs from me? Mm. Wouldn't you say the same questions are true of the sciences, though? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. But I think it's sort of it, the process that I, I sort of went through was sort of a very introspective one about, you know, putting the competitiveness aside. What do I really enjoy doing? What do I really feel like, you know, I, I can do well? And what do I really feel is the most important? Mm. Well, could we ask you to play a bit for us now? Sure. My pleasure. Great. This is the adagio from, from Bach's uh, solo sonata in G minor.
what a treat. Yeah. Aaron, thank you so much for joining us, and thank you so much for that really incredible music. My pleasure. And thank you always, as always, Laura. Thank you, Nick. Thanks also to our producer, James Brandt, and to our guardian protectors in the GSAS Office of Communications. Our theme music is by Domenico Vicinanza. We'd love to hear your comments, questions, gripes, or suggestions for future guests. You can reach us at veritalk at gmail.com or find us at facebook.com slash veritalk. You can also find me on Twitter at at Nicholas Nardini. From all of us at Veritalk, thanks for listening.